Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the show where we are watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Gunley. This week we are watching F.W. Murnau's Faust, and man, you would not believe the deal I had to cut to get our guest on here today. He is a writer and a critic. You've seen his work in thespool.com and at marvel.com, as well as many, many other reputable places. Please say hello to Tim Stevens. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm proud I'm to be here. So, I'm so excited to have you. I, we've been kind of uh, casual internet acquaintances for quite a long time, so I'm glad to actually see a face and hear a voice. Um, so, yeah, so you, uh, well, we're talking about Faust today, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, why did you want to talk about this movie in particular? Uh, well, actually, um, back in college, uh, I had a couple of minors, American government and film. And one of the film courses I took, actually, the first film course I took was German film. Nice. Uh, and Faust was one of the movies we watched. I haven't watched it since then, but it definitely made an impact on me. So it was great to revisit it. Absolutely. Uh, th this one's brand new to me. I've never seen it before. I was kind of passingly familiar with the the general story of Faust. Like, I've never read the Marlowe play or the Van Gogh play mm -hmm. or any of that, you know, so I was just kind of familiar with the concept of one selling one's soul to the devil, you know, in just kind of the broad strokes. And I was prepared for like a very stuffy, uh, silent literary adaptation. And I was completely <laughs> not prepared for how bonkers and amazing this movie is. Like throughout my notes, like I, I take notes while I'm watching the movie and there were so mm -hmm. many sentences that started with, wow or holy shit or how did they do that or what like this movie is straight up death metal like inspiration like i don't know it, it's it's so visually it's, evocative and, yeah it, it's it's absolutely wild i mean just um in a lot of the stuff i had forgotten you know i watched it when i was 18 that was a decade plus ago mm. um and just the aesthetics of it are incredible um and you know the things they attempt you know stuff that in the 1970s, you would have said like, oh, there's no way they can pull that off. You know, they're yeah. doing those things. They're going for it because for them, the the unreality of it was part of the appeal. Like they weren't looking to trick you into thinking this is actually happening. They wanted that disconnect. Um, and especially when you're talking a story like Faust where the devil's involved, mm -hmm. that disconnect just adds into the creepiness for me. You know, the, the factor of, yeah, this is not reality because – these, you know, be it the angel or the devil involved, they warp reality just by being there. You know, they make these bizarre things unfold. Absolutely. And it's so cool to just kind of watch it unfold. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the facts and figures of the movie here. So Faust was released on October 14th, 1926 in Germany. It is directed by F.W. Murnau, and it stars Emil, J Emil Jannings, Gosta Ekman, and Camila Horn. Uh, as far as availability, I was able to find this on Fandor. Uh, I did a free trial through Amazon Prime. That's the only way I could find it. But this movie's in the public domain, so you can probably find some butchered copy of it in some way or another. But the Fandor one is uh, kind of the definitive version available right now. That's the same thing I did. I also found it on YouTube. Um, oh. That version is uh, straight English captions as opposed to the German with English subtitles. You know, it's a silent movie, but the, um, it has interstitial uh, comments and things like that to let you know what's happening in the action. Uh, and uh, the YouTube one is straight English, but the print is uh, even worse than the Fandor one. It's really hard to see. So I definitely oh, yeah. was happy I managed to locate Fandor after that. For sure. And I wouldn't want to lose those German intertitles, too, because they look amazing. Like, they're really evocative uh, uh, yeah. lettering. And just, like, you would lose the impact of that last scene with Liebe, like, being emblazoned mm -hmm. across the screen. I don't know. Absolutely, it look, yeah. It wouldn't look as cool. 
No. Uh, so a little bit about F.W. Murnau. Uh, he'll be coming up a few times on this show, but this is our first time crossing uh, paths with him. So a lot like his peers, you know, Lubitsch, Lang, uh, Van Stroheim, Van Sternberg, Preminger, all these guys. He was part of this wave of German expressionist filmmakers who kind of were successful in crossing over to the American film market uh, and, and really kind of carved out an interesting path for themselves. So Murnau was born in Germany in 1888. Uh, he studied languages and theater in college, and he was even kind of starting to set out on his career as an actor when he uh, enlisted to sign uh, to fight in World War One. He fought fighter plane, uh, flew fighter planes over there uh, until he was eventually shot down and interred in a Swiss prison camp for a little while. And apparently, he wrote and staged a lot of plays while he was in that prison camp. So hmm. you know, he's he's productive. Uh, after he returned to Germany, he and the actor Konrad Veit uh, decided to get into filmmaking. And they established their own studio. Their first film was uh, uh, called The Boy Blue or The Blue Boy, and that was in 1919. But uh, it would be 10 years later before Murnau would really, really cement his reputation in Hol- uh, uh, as a you know, filmmaker, and that would be with Nosferatu, 1929. Mm-hmm. Although you could also point to The Last Laugh in 1924. I don't think that one's quite as iconic as Nosferatu, but that is also on the list. I'll be talking about that one. Yeah, and that one is why we have the Joker today as well. That's one of the things that, one of the places you get inspiration from, The Man Who Laughs and The Last Laugh as well, oh, are right. things you pull from. Yeah, oh man, I, re- I remember seeing The Man Who Laughs and that is that's Conrad Veet too, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. his face frozen like that. Yeah. Yeah, so Faust would actually prove to be Murnau's last German film. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1927, where he soon completed his very first American feature, Sunrise. Uh, and so now the credit tends to go to the jazz singer as like the first talky movie, but I guess technically Sunrise came out two weeks before the jazz singer did, and it has... Huh audio dialogue in there, you know? And so it tends to get a little overlooked in that regard. I I would rather call Sunrise the first talkie movie because it's way less pro- problematic and a lot more entertaining than the jazz singer. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go take a flying leap, jazz singer. Uh, Sunrise would eventually be nominated for Best Picture at the very first Oscars, and it would be included on the AFI list of the 100 greatest films ever made. Um, his subsequent films aren't as well remembered, but that's because most of them no longer exist. Uh, of the 21 films he directed, eight of them are lost, including his follow-up to Sunrise, which was called Four Devils. It was about a family of tightrope walkers, and I really am uh, upset I don't get to see that. That's kind of like the Flying Graysons, the movie. I think I'd be into that. Uh, Murnau, sadly, he died of a car accident in 1931 at the age of 42, uh, yeah, but not really a lot known about him uh, from his personal life. It is agreed upon kind of historically that he was a homosexual. Uh, there's a lot of dispute on whether he was open about that or not, or if it was just kind of a commonly held belief. Um, but yeah, yeah, his his films have survived and thrived, and uh, we're, we're going to be talking about him a couple more times on this show. I think one other important person we need to talk about here is Emil Jannings, because uh, this guy's had a very, very interesting career. He plays Mephisto in this movie uh, very, very effectively. Uh, he was one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time that this came out, and he actually is the first actor to ever win a Best, Pic- a Best Actor Oscar uh, for the movie The Last Command in 1928. However, we really don't talk about him anymore because uh, after his uh, Oscar win and everything like that, he moved back to Germany where he became the resident actor for the Nazi party. He appeared in uh, about half a dozen direct propaganda films. Joseph Goebbels uh, uh, hailed him as a hero of the state and 
after the war ended, uh, that, that didn't really buy him a lot of leeway. Uh, so <sighs> he, he died in 1950 shortly after that. But uh, yeah, he made some propaganda films and then never worked again. And nowadays, if you want to see a little side of Emil Jannings, uh, there's an actor portraying him in the final scene of Inglorious Bastards. Uh, you know the one I'm talking about. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so how familiar were you with the Faust story when you first saw this movie, Tim? Were you like... I had read the Marlowe play in, I guess it would have been my senior year of, or no, it would have been my junior year of high school. Okay. So I knew the play, but um, I didn't know anything about the movie going into it. Um and it was definitely something that took me by surprise. Uh, you know, the way the class was laid out, it obviously started with a silent era and went forward from there. And I went in with the attitude that I was just going to sort of grit my teeth and make it through the silent era. Yeah. Uh, and in retrospect, it turned out, you know, a lot of my favorite experiences were from those early movies just because, like I said, it's just breathtaking how much they did and how much they went for in a oh, way yeah. that you don't necessarily see a lot of uh, as you get into, you know, the more the technology rises, the more... Uh, you don't necessarily risk it because you can do so much already. Why push it where it might look silly? Uh, right. Kind of thing. Um, yeah, and there, there were no rules at this time, so there were no rules to break, really. They were, they were figuring exactly. it out. Yeah. And everything looked surreal and like it came from a different world. So why not lean into that and use it for great effect? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and so. this has some of the more interesting and striking and daring visuals that I've seen in a movie from this era. Like on this show so far, the only silent films we've covered have been Unchan Andalou and Metropolis, which we'll, we'll mm. get into. Cause I think there's a lot of parallels with this in Metropolis, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, like I said, I wasn't terribly familiar with the Faust story. Uh, I, I shamefully, I think the way I knew this story was from the movie tombstone where <laughs> Dana Delaney is playing the, the, I think they call her like a, a, a sexy lady Satan or something like that. Val Kilmer calls her that at some point. So that was like my only understanding of this story, but you piece it together from context and over history, we've had so many stories of like selling your soul to the devil, everything from the devil and Daniel Webster to be dazzled, you know, it, it's a, uh, it's kind of a common trope, but it started here. I didn't realize Faust was a real person. Uh, he was a real person back in the 1400s, I believe. He was an alchemist and a traveling magici- uh, magician and yep. probably a con man uh, yeah, from Hall Almost accounts. certainly, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's very uh, sort of a Vlad the Impaler kind of thing that, you know, they, there's this <laughs> historical figure at the basis of it that, you know, we've gotten so far away from that. He doesn't really resemble him anymore, but there's a guy at the, at the center of the Faust myth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, they kind of ran with it. He was condemned by the church. Uh, and so his reputation kind of grew toxic from there. And by the time Marlowe wrote his play in the late 1500s, uh, th- that was kind of this idea of who he was as this kind of scheming guy who would have deals with these otherworldly figures. Mm-hmm. So the story was refined even further with uh, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's story in uh, the early 1800s that was adapted into mm-hmm. a play. And then, I mean, that's been told multiple times over. Thomas Mann wrote a uh, book about it. Um, and then Margarita, uh, Master Margarita is a take on this story. Like right. lots of classic novels have kind of stemmed from this. Yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, this version that we watched has one of the sort of more sympathetic Fausts, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. You know, almost all the Fausts are driven by, it sounds funny to say that, almost all the Fausts. Um, almost <laughs> all the, the legends or stories that a came out of, of Fausts. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> Start with the idea that he's somehow frustrated by what he can do as a man and therefore turns to Satan. With this one, at least they give him um, 
at least a primary reason that's at least understandable because you, there's this terrible plague. So he's motivated in part by altruism, uh, and you don't necessarily see that with a lot of the Fausts. A lot of the Fausts yeah. are, are more specifically after power right from the beginning. Which I think was a really smart move on Murnau's part to make him mm -hmm. a more sympathetic character because it's much more intriguing to... Uh, send a good man astray than someone who's already kind of power hungry and like looking for that edge, you know, it, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's showing that he can be corruptible even if he is a good person. Right. So this was actually the fourth attempt at bringing this story to the screen. There were three earlier versions. All of them are lost now, including one from 1922, which is thought to be the very first attempt at 3d filmmaking. I have no idea what that would look like, but it is huh. gone forever now. Um, since Murnau's version, this has been adapted multiple more times. Like I said, The Devil and Daniel Webster in 1941, Phantom of the Paradise, the De Palma movie, uh, Bedazzled. Yeah, I think that would count. And I I'm actually going to be talking about this story again on this show. There's a 1981 Hungarian film called Mephisto that sets the Faust story in Nazi Germany. So hmm. I'm looking forward to that one and seeing how it compares to this one. So... The production studio of this film was UFA. They were one of the biggest uh, German production houses at the time. And uh, they basically gave Murnau a blank check after he made The Last Laugh. That was a successful film for them. So they said, all right, make whatever you want. We'll fund it. That's fine. Uh, so this is the same studio that would fund Metropolis two years later. So that makes two back-to-back -back movies for this studio that were large German expressionist films that flopped at the box office and went way over budget. <laughs> So mm -hmm. that's two in a row for them. Uh, the budget on this movie was equivalent to $8 million today. It was the most expensive film production ever until the very next year when Metropolis would beat that. Um, so two of the actresses considered for Gretchen uh, were silent movie superstar Lillian Gish. Uh, she passed because she insisted on working with her regular cinematographer. And the other one is an up-and-coming German filmmaker named Lenny Reifenstahl. Who, uh, oh boy. Yeah, we dodged a, dodged a bullet on that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, Camilla Horn landed the role. She was an unknown actress. She'd never done any real film work before except as a stand-in. Uh, but Murnau saw a quality in her. I think she was very good. Uh, another interesting fact here is that Wilhelm Dieterle, who plays Valentin, uh, Gretchen's older brother, he actually fled Germany shortly after this movie uh, to escape the Nazis moved to Hollywood, became a respected filmmaker. He directed the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame. He won Best Picture with The Life of Emile Zola at the second Oscars. And ironically, in 1941, he directed The Devil and Daniel Webster. So he yes. was quite familiar with this story. Um, yeah, and like we said, this movie is now in the public domain, so you can find it most anywhere. There are about five or six different recognized versions of this. Mm -hmm. The 106-minute the Kino Lorber version that you find on Fandor is generally considered to be the cleanest and the most complete cut of the movie. So if you can, I would say check that one out. Fandor, I believe it's like a free trial kind of situation, so you can watch it and drop out. Or yeah, you, you on, get whatever. a week free to start with. And Fandor has a lot of good stuff, not to be a salesperson for them, but, you know, if you choose to hang around more than a week, you wouldn't necessarily serve yourself poorly to do so. No, not at all. No, I think especially for my purposes on this show, I'm going to need as many different outlets <laughs> for some of these movies as possible. I've had some that have already proven to be very difficult to track down. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you were talking about different cuts and that sort of thing. One of the more interesting things is that the version we got almost didn't exist because... When all was said and done, the film was completed in the can. They were applying the intertitles from Hans Kaiser, I believe his name is, hmm. or Kaiser, and the studio didn't like the script. 
So they commissioned another script from Gerhard Hapman, hmm. and they actually ended up hating that one more. So the version <laughs> that's released does have the original script, but it very nearly was replaced. It's only because the replacement proved that much worse that we got what was intended. I that's that's what I aspire to, like in my writing career. I would just like to be whoever's getting the job next, just be slightly worse than me. I don't need to be great. I just need to be better than the next guy. That's right. <laughs> that's how I'm gonna eke out a little foothold in history, you know. <laughs> so, uh. Let's get into this movie a little bit. Like, yeah, like I said, I was really not prepared for what this movie would offer. And when it opens up and the very first thing you see are uh, four horsemen riding on these like skeleton horse puppets mm -hmm. in like this really uh, smoky kind of soundstage. I'm like, all right, you got me. I'm I'm in 100 percent for whatever it this is like. That's an audacious way to open a movie with like these flying <laughs> skeleton horses it's like it already lets you know it's like all right you are in for something really cool here <laughs> this first 20 minutes of this movie it, it's some of the most invigorating like silent film cinema i've ever seen like it is relentless like every image is just incredible it, it almost reminded me of a pixar movie in some ways like in the way that mm. you know a pixar crams every frame with like little things right. that you can notice so like so you see something new every time mm -hmm. i feel like that's going on here and uh, it, it's so fun to just kind of dissect it. But we kind of meet our, our key players, which is uh, the Archangel, who's never really given a name, and Mephisto, right. who is a demon or maybe the devil. I don't think he's the devil. I think he's a devil, he's, right? He's never specifically mentioned as the devil. And I think that's intentional in the same way that they've chosen an angel as opposed to God. You right. know, these are sort of um, – these are deals that are happening sort of – under the table for like a better way to put it, you know, that I don't know why exactly, but you, I guess the, the theme is, you know, obviously God wouldn't necessarily make these kinds of wagers. So you have to have an angel do it. And then yeah. as long as you have an angel do it, it might as well be a demon as opposed to Satan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although so. I, I would say Satan would probably be, have fewer qualms about gambling. directly, yeah. But also I don't think he would want to mingle with the riffraff like this. I think he's, right. got, he's got stuff that he's got big picture stuff to worry about. Exactly. But, and it's that sort of they're even power levels, for lack of a better way to put it. So it's a fair competition as opposed to, you know, if it was the great Satan, you know, who's opposing an angel, it's already tipped in, in evil's uh, favor. Yes. And I, I also I mean, I'm getting ahead of things here, but I also have the possibly controversial take that uh, Mephisto technically won this bet. Like, I don't know. I don't know about this pulling the rug out underneath. I like, don't get me wrong. I'm happy that everything's okay for Faust and, and for Gretchen. But like, come on, he didn't win this bet. You're changing. The, you're shifting the goalposts here, Archangel. Like, all right, but we'll we'll get to that. Either way, there is a wager for Faust's soul between uh, the powers of heaven and the powers of hell. And so immediately Mephisto sets out to make his mark and corrupt this incorruptible man. And there's that incredible, incredible image. Like, and look, I know I'm looking at models. Like, I know there's <laughs> no, like, this isn't like super convincing. You know, you're looking at models, but seeing that looming devil with his one gigantic black wing curving around the entire city yeah. while he cackles, like, I just kept thinking how incredible this would be to see this in a movie now. Like, you see some, like, just like this gigantic figure just towering over it. And nobody knows he's there. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know, it feels so incredibly menacing. And it's such an amazing shot uh, that I was just like, I was so in on this movie right from the get go. Right. And like you said, there are no rules. So why not make a giant 
devil overseeing an entire town or you know city, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Uh, you know, why not go as large as possible? And it's funny, it doesn't feel. It's definitely over the top. There's oh, no yeah. doubt about that. But it doesn't feel. It's not like over the top in modern films in terms of like it takes you out of the story or things like that. Every sort of giant choice they make deepens the story. It, it, they do a really good job of uh, it all feeds into the plot. It's not showy for showy's sake. And it no. doesn't it doesn't break the reality because the reality is just so insane from the beginning. I shouldn't say insane. So incredible. So overblown from the beginning that, you know, you're dealing with these things on this gigantic level that it, you know, of course the devil would throw his wings around this place. Yeah. It, it really helps drive home the stakes of, of what's happening Mm -hmm. here. Like this movie really, really succeeds at creating an air of menace. Like even in its quieter moments, like, we know that evil is a physical presence that walks in the world and it feels like that. This feels like a type of environment that would be conducive to that. And it it really nails it from the get-go. And a lot of credit has to go to Emil Yannings because, and the makeup effects. When we first see Mephesto fully resplendent with his horns and with his Mm -hmm. wings and everything like that, such an imposing figure. His costume gets a little sillier as it goes on, as he goes into the uh, the, the more... um, Piperish, <laughs> right? The more he interacts with people, the the more sort of that majestic evil, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, breaks down. Yeah. But even that's an interesting, you know, there's a way you can interpret that that fits with, you know, the more these devils and angels sully themselves with humans, the more they sort of lose their luster yeah. or their their intimidation. And the uh, yawnings, like so much credit has to go to yawnings. I was watching this movie and like. Murnau does this incredible thing with the actor's eyes. Like every actor has such incredible eyes in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Yawnings in particular, the way that Murnau shot it, it almost looks like he doesn't have pupils a lot of the time. And I right. thought like, yep. is he wearing contacts? Is he doing something like that? And then you, if you look closely, it's just, no, he's just looking really far. He just has incredible control over his mm-hmm. eyes. And he's just showing us the sclera so that we can like white it out and just make him look more menacing, you know? And, Murnau right. might be heightening that with lighting effects, but a lot of that's just yawnings in his eyes. Right. Yeah, I think it's a matter of he he knows the angles so well that Murnau can, you know, feed off it with lighting and the combination just nails that sort of empty eye effect. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so he uh, he goes down to Earth and he he starts unleashing this pestilence upon the Earth. And that's an incredible sequence. Like it's a town fair and a, uh, a street performer who's, like, been doing acrobatics on the street. He's wearing this weird, like, hairy, almost like a ghillie suit, you know? He, mm-hmm. he, I don't know exactly what he's trying to be, but watching him in his death throes wearing this silly costume, crawling on the ground like a worm, while all these clotheslines, like, domino behind him, like, right. really incredible. And you're really, again, it's driving home the stakes here. And now we learn a little bit more about Faust, and we learn that he's the local alchemist, uh, and he is he's concerned with saving these people. He sees that uh, his village has been struck with pestilence and plague and he wants to do something to save them. And he's frustrated that he can't to the point where he has to burn all of his books and and destroy it. Yeah. And you were talking about the guy in the ghillie suit. One of the interesting things about that whole scene is it re-nails the sort of bread, bread and circus aspect of it. You know, the people as he's in his death throes, as he's contorting and so on, the audience is still very much into it. It's only when he finally collapses that 
someone cares to check on his state of being and they realize immediately it's plague um in the uh, in the online or the uh, youtube version you're talking about how they introduce faust they're actually far less it's strange they're far less complimentary um they the captions are much more dismissive you know they refer mm. to him as um only concern with converting base metals to gold, I think, which is by definition what an alchemist is. Oh, yeah. But just the tone of it is so much more like they're gilding the lily uh, yeah. in the American version as opposed to the original uh, German uh, subtitles and then, you know, the American translation of them, which is far more even. And you get far more of a feeling that being an alchemist in this environment isn't about greed. This is, you know, he's a decent person. He's a decent member of their society. Yeah. And that is something I had to pick up from context because I wasn't exactly sure what an alchemist would be to this part Mm -hmm. of the world at this time. You know, uh, like I, if you think of alchemists now, it's like, they're mostly, you you look back, it's like harmless crackpots or something. And then we know that they were kind of oppressed by the church for being magical or evil or something like that. Mm -hmm. In all, in all like seriousness, they were mostly just, kind of wandering physicians trying to figure stuff out, you know, and the turning right. lead into gold was just kind of one of many things that they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of demonstrated here. And uh, th- there's a, so, oh, sorry, lost my notes. There we go. Yeah. Oh, I, I loved how uh, deep set uh, Faust's eyes looked. Like I thought he looked like a wax mannequin a lot of time. He looked very mm-hmm. wild eyed and there were uh, echoes of, Rotvang, the uh, uh, mad scientist in Metropolis that I watched recently. I'm just seeing like, okay, yeah. this might be kind of where that archetype is coming from as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the masterful use of shadows. Murnau was always so, so good with with lighting and with shadow and with with framing his scenes. You know, So nothing in this movie looks real, but it also doesn't look like it's a set. It looks right. like you've stepped into kind of this alternate world where everything's just kind of a little off. And yeah, the extreme angles kind of counter that. Right. And with the makeup job, you know, you were talking about the deep set eyes and um, the wax figure kind of feel to it. It's he, the actor plays both the young and the old. We'll later, we'll get into the young version of mm-hmm. Faust as well. Um, and it's very interesting that in some ways they don't really resemble each other. When he becomes young Faust, you're not like, oh yeah, it's the same person. They're very different looking. But in that way, it's sort of more accurate than your typical um, old age makeup, mm. which is just taking the existing facial structure and just piling stuff on. Because there's a lot of people who don't necessarily look like they look at 30 as they do at 70. So you can really see in old Faust how life has kind of beat him up because of the nature of the it is sort of the weirdness of the makeup. It really gives you a feel for this is a guy who... Um, even before the plague comes to his village, has not had the easiest of existences. And I'm I'm not sure if it's a credit to Murnau or an indictment of me, but so, you know, I, I consider myself to be moderately film literate. You know, I'm pretty good at spotting like some of the tricks. I had no idea that the two Fausts were being played by the same guy. Until yeah, about midway deal. through the movie, and I'm looking it up, it's like, oh yeah, wow, this, this, uh, who's this young Faust? Like, I, I wonder, like, why is there only one Faust listed? They're clearly different people. I'm a smart man. Uh, like, I was so impressed. Like, I don't yeah. get fooled by that. Maybe it helps that I wasn't familiar with Gusta Ekman as an actor. Like, I didn't I didn't have him in my head as anybody that I would recognize. So, mm-hmm. like, he could disappear into that a little bit better. But I was genuinely blown away that it was the same person because they really go to lengths to show that the young Faust is, like, this really beautiful, like, 
pristine young man and right. and old fast is just all bent over and hunched and looks like the wizard from uh, fantasia so mm-hmm. you know it's Absolutely. it's really amazing um i i made the note and i'm not sure if this was just because i had only just watched these movies or if there's actually a parallel here but i was getting such strong evil dead vibes off of this movie i feel like sam hmm. raimi is definitely a fan of Murnau's Faust because of the quick cuts and that some of the camera angles that come up on people, like mm-hmm. I'm getting a real similar vibe off of that. Uh, and just that sense of being big, you know, not worrying more about, uh, aesthetic and tone as opposed to, I want this to feel real. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's over the top without, letting you feel like you're you're dropping out of the reality of it you know right because there's no there's no ironic winking in this you know no, it's not no it, it, it's over the top with a hundred percent commitment yeah absolutely absolutely so faust makes his uh proverbial deal with the devil and when mephisto appears it is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because he shows up as just this very uh, ordinary looking beggar, but there's something mm-hmm. so off about him. He just sits there and he very robotically lifts his hand up and doffs his cap and then puts it down. Faust flees and everywhere he goes, Mephisto is there waiting for him and he does the same exact motion with his hand. And that creeped me out so bad. Like he's not, <laughs> he's not doing anything menacing other than just being where he's not supposed to be, where he can't possibly be. Right. And it's so crazy effective. And again, he's a bit, he's got these super creepy eyes that are just shining through, uh, in every scene. Yeah. And it really fits the sort of theology of the movie, I guess you could say. Yeah. In that there is this sense that evil is always just on the doorstep you know yeah. that it doesn't matter that faust has lived a good life for however many years he is he like everyone else is just one bad moment away from this you know i think ultimately the movie is very sort of hopeful yeah and like you said in the way it pulls the rug out at the last minute there is a sort of it doesn't matter how far you fall you know heaven could still await you but in terms of its view of the world it's very um not cynical, but very much like nihilistic trap. Yeah. yeah. There are traps for you all over the place and they will literally follow you through town. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and it's so evocative and amazing, but eventually they get into conversation and, uh, he agrees to a trial, a trial day of selling his soul where he can see what it's like to have the power to fix people and maybe get a glimpse of his youth again. You know, it, it turns out to be pretty easy to sway Faust. Like once this first goal that he set for himself has kind of been set aside, it's pretty easy to sway him to keep up with his deal. And there's some great irony here. Like again, any deal with the devil is going to be marked with some kind of ironic consequence that you don't want. So Faust suddenly has the ability to cure all the people in his village. He knows how to do it and he can help them. Mm-hmm. But people see that he's repelled by the cross and they know that he's doing these dark deeds. And so they don't trust him. They won't go near him for his cure. So he's he's left in this impotent position, you know, and now he's kind of cast out. He doesn't really have a village to go home to and he doesn't really he doesn't really have anywhere he can go. So this temptation of getting to reclaim his youth and go after the most beautiful woman in the world is now on the table for him. It's now something that he could actually conceive of himself doing. Yeah, and even, or not even, but that's really interesting too because the initial woman offered to him 
he's interested in for sure she's a beautiful woman but it's not actually ultimately the person who tempts him into crossing the line no um he he's not just motivated by the physicality even as he accepts more and more power even as he goes further to the dark side uh what really interests him is the the sweetness and the innocence of the woman he does eventually give it up for that he does um both lose his soul but also specifically request being younger yeah to, to be with and of course like it's playing into the madonna whore complex as well you know it says that he mm-hmm. spent he spent quite a bit of time an indeterminate amount of time living this debauched lifestyle you know where he got to be with anyone he wanted and drink and eat and just live his life as freely as he wants with no consequences but then he is kind of turned back by this very good and pure like young woman uh and then, of course, the irony being that she's extremely pious and he's not able to follow her into the church to try and talk to her or, or strike up any kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of illustrated that, like, we're never going to be satisfied. There's always going to be another temptation. There's always going to be something else that we want that is out of reach, even if it feels like everything's kind of presented to us on the silver platter. And so he's he's always kind of pushing Mephesto. And Mephesto is almost like... He's almost like his servant, but he's also pulling the strings. You know, it's like he has to kind of do what he says. There's a scene, the scene where he goes to uh, woo the Duchess of Parma reminded me a lot of Disney's Aladdin, actually, because Mm -hmm. with with Mephisto serving as kind of a twisted mirror image of the genie, because he shows up. First of all, they're having this incredible party. Like you've got all these synchronized dancers just kind of filling up the background, like not even Mm -hmm. really taking the focal point. It's just kind of adding that liveliness to the movie. And I don't know how he structured that shot. Uh, I don't know if he's got like slanted sets or something like that, but they appear to Mm -hmm. be everywhere. Yep. And then Faust shows up looking like a million bucks, riding two gigantic robot elephants that (laughs) were, it was so incredible. Like I just loved seeing those, like what kind of special effect is this? How did they do that? Like, I mean, well, you know how they did it. You can see it. They they show close shots and you see it's like, okay, yeah, this is canvas and this is a puppet like working under there. But like, but they went for it. They built these two gigantic Mm -hmm. elephant puppets for like two scenes, like 10 seconds of the movie. You see these elephants. They must have cost so much money. (laughs) Uh, But I love that they went there. You know, I love that. So, yeah, uh, I feel like the movie loses a little bit of steam after that initial like rush of the first 20, 30 minutes. I think the, the for me, I don't know. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, off base on that one, but I think, I think the relationship with uh, Faust and Gretchen was less compelling than all the machinations that were kind of going on behind the scenes. There's a subplot with Gretchen's aunt that uh, I, I don't know. I never really went anywhere. I didn't feel mm. like maybe like I just kind of missed it, but she was kind of like the local apothecary, and she almost strikes up a little bit of a relationship with the devil, but like the devil's kind of into it. And so, or the, she's kind of into it and the devil's not interested in that. Like he wants to corrupt somebody and she's right. already kind of there, uh, but she doesn't really have a whole lot of impact on the story or what, what's going on. Um, so I don't know. I felt like that, you know, I don't want to uh, backseat edit a movie from a hundred years ago, <laughs> but you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I wonder what that's about. Cause I do think there is in some ways that, you know, obviously she suffers for his sins. She ends up uh, in a really terrible place because of his actions having nothing to do with her own. Mm. Um, but there's something sort of – I wonder if we're supposed to connect with the normalcy of it because, once again, you, almost every step of the way, Faust is 
in some ways satisfied with where he is. You know, like if the people would just take the cure, I don't think he necessarily goes farther. Right. But then he does. But then he does because of, again, every step of the way, say, or Mephisto pushes things a little farther than they need to go. Then you know, Faust would do on his own. Like yeah. you know, it's it's um, the devil who stabs Valentine, who is um, Gretchen's brother. Mm-hmm. It's not Faust. Faust is doesn't go that far. No. Uh, Mephisto does. And you see that same thing with, um, you know, when they go to Parma, it's um, the devil kills the groom. It's not Faust. Uh, and he wasn't even thinking that way necessarily. You know, it's so it's over and over again. We get caught in the cycle where uh, Faust is not good, but he's not wicked. It's that he is uh, Mephisto has his finger on the scale every step of the way. He's he's the you know, direct beneficiary of evil, even if he's not the correct. perpetrator. Yeah, right, exactly, and and therefore yes, he is guilty. But at the same time, the idea is that you know it, by putting him with Gretchen, in some ways, you see that Faust, even though he literally doesn't have a soul anymore because he signed it away, is still somebody you know he's not cruel towards her. No, he clearly cares about her. Um, even if he did kind of trick her via this magic and the gold chain and that sort of thing. Um, but he wants, and at the same he, time, he is fundamentally, he's fallen because he has sold his soul. Yeah. But he, he wants that normalcy. I think he thinks he's right. still entitled to that, you know, the, whatever the, uh, ancient Teutonic equivalent of a white picket fence is, you know, I think he right. wants, he wants that kind of ideal. And, yeah. I think he would have to know, as as smart a man as he is, he would have to know that's out of reach for him with this deal that he's made. He has to he has to be seeing the patterns at this point that things are always kind of a little off. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, we talked about the other Faust stories. Almost all of them are motivated by a desire for knowledge and power. Yeah, he seems almost motivated by a desire just to be, like you said, just to have a sort of average life. You Mm -hmm. know. He he doesn't want the cure because he wants to be exalted. He wants the cure because he feels terrible that he failed that young woman whose uh, grandmother he, or mother he couldn't save. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he could be connected to this very uh, attractive woman who has, you know, all this power. But he is instead attracted to, to Gretchen and he gives his life, you know, he, he wants his life with her as opposed to all the riches. And, you know, if you become whatever the Dutch of Parma, I yeah. think you sort of are, and you are probably not somebody in that time who was particularly faithful either. So, you know, he has this promise of all these other women as well. Uh, and yet he is driven towards what is ostensibly monogamy in a kind of everyday sort of existence. There's so all, it's very yeah. different from most Faust characters that we see. Yeah. There's also kind of the strong through line of like the path less taken, you know, you get the sense mm-hmm. that, Faust devoted his life to the alchemical arts and to being a physician, right. to healing other people. And he kind of eschewed all of that uh, family and, and getting married and having kids. And now that he's got his youth again, he's literally got a chance to do it over. You know, he wants to seize that life. He wants to see the thing that, uh, uh, that he missed out on the first time around. Right. So it, it makes it much more impactful than if he was just mm-hmm. kind of a greedy, conniving bastard, you know? Right. And it makes, you know, the end of the movie make that much more sense. If you had this Faust story or if you had another Faust story and the way this one does, you know, if Marlowe's, for instance, ended with, well, he's redeemed by love, uh, it would ring so false. Yeah. But in this one, you have a protagonist that you could believe 
would sacrifice himself as opposed to like Marlowe's, who I believe ends the play like begging for not to be taken away. But even in that moment, he's not begging God. He's begging the devil. You know, he's not begging for salvation. Right. He's begging to be spared. Uh, whereas this Faust is more or less um, selfless at the end. You know, he doesn't want the woman he loves to die by herself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So things get very complicated. We mentioned uh, Valentin before. That is Gretchen's older brother. He's a soldier just back from the war. I wrote in my notes that he looks a lot like Calabac from DC Comics, if you know that character, the new <laughs> the new God's character. He's got his giant head and like this big... Fr- or he looks like maybe like a JRPG character. Like he's really burly. He's got very spiky hair and he's just got this like kind of uh, uh, buoyant life, you know. Uh, and he kind of finds out uh, through rumor that... Faust might be seducing his sister. He grows angry. He goes to confront them. I love the shot of like, we see Valentine charging into the house. And then instead of cutting inside the house to see the confrontation, we just hover on the door for a few seconds until the two of them come spilling out like already mid duel. So Mm -hmm. we're kind of spared the silent movie histrionics of like the, you know, like I'm, (laughs) I'm doing silent movie stuff. You can't see it on a podcast, but you know, so they come out, they're mid-fight. Uh, Mephisto, of course, like you said, he's got his fingers on the scales. And so he sneaks up behind Valentine and stabs him in the back. And with Valentine's dying breath, he calls his sister a whore and demands she be put in the stocks, which is uh, great. horrifying. Yeah. And this kind of defines the rest of her life in a really tragic way. She has become pregnant by Faust who has now been spirited off to hell once again to, um, at least I was reading that as hell. I don't know. I, it's hard to say for sure, but the place that he I, hangs yeah, I out think in that's between. the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so she is left alone to fend for this child. No one will help her or touch her because she's this unclean woman. Uh, she's left out in the snow where her baby dies and she is accused of murdering the child and sentenced to be burned to death. At mm-hmm. this point, Faust, uh, demands to be brought to her so that he could comfort her in these last moments or try to stop her. He renounces his deal with uh, Mephisto, uh, demands to have his old age restored to him. Mephisto does this by breaking the mirror that has his soul captured in it, and Faust throws himself on the pyre with uh, Gretchen. And as they're both kind of burning alive, there's a brilliant flash of light and an amazing special effect. And we see both of the young, healthy versions of Gretchen and Faust be elevated up to heaven from there. And, and there's a similar effect, actually, when the baby dies as well, that we see the baby because it's in the snow and it's freezing. And then we see the baby in this sort of warm light, uh, I believe, in a cradle. Yeah. Uh, and sort of, you know, the commentary there is obviously the baby has been taken away to heaven. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, there's evil everywhere. And yet at the same time, there are these little things of... Uh, hope that are buried uh, amongst the, the terribleness. Yeah, and and that's a really that's a really impressive special effect with the baby, by the way, because it's mm-hmm. clearly like a superimposed cradle, but she also yep. rests the baby on it and rocks it in a realistic way. So it's resting yeah. on something that we don't see. So it's like a subtle effect, but it's really really cool, and I'm still not entirely sure how they did it. And there's a lot of that in this movie. Like, I should know 100 years on how they did some of these things. I should be able to see this and, like, look at, and see the strings and see the, like, gears working. Mm-hmm. And so often the time here, I can't. Like, and maybe it's just because the film stock is grainy. Like, this is one of those films that definitely benefits from not having, like, a pristine restoration or anything. I like that it's a little gritty looking. It's a little scratchy. And uh, mm-hmm. some things are kind of lost in this haze. 
I think that really benefits and really kind of heightens the uh, the menace of the movie. But we finally get the payoff to the big bet. Mephisto comes forward to claim his prize, which uh, I believe is all of Earth. Uh, and uh, the archangel appears before him and says, not so fast, because one word destroys thy pact. And then we get the word Liba, love, blazoned in fire across the sky and across the inner titles. And it's an amazing sentiment. It's kind of a nice idea. But again, uh, I want to see the fine print on their bet because uh, they never said anything about like, oh, love can undo all of this, by the way. Uh, I don't know. That seems like a pretty cheap cop out. I mean, I'm not siding with the angels. I'm literally being the devil's advocate here. But uh, I don't know. It just seems like he didn't win the bet to me. I don't know. But I'm, I'm, I'm not God. I'm not refereeing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still an effective moment either way, like my my snark aside, you know, and yeah, I think that and that kind of wraps up the movie. I mean, it's it's yeah, you really do have to go through it in the end there. Like I, I kind of sped past some of the stuff with Gretchen on the streets, but it gets harrowing. Like the movie is very, very bleak in the last like 20 minutes or so. Like, I mean, you're you're seeing just tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And it is nice that we get this night. Uh, this coda that kind of wraps everything up and gives these characters a happy ending ultimately. And I love the angel wings that they constructed for the actor playing the archangel. It just fills the mm -hmm. frame and they lit him from the yeah, back. They're, they're beautiful. Uh, they really are. I mean, they're, and they are very much like feathered wings. It's, yeah. it's pretty impressive. Yeah. It looks amazing. And I mean, weirdly, this is an effect that's still hard to pull off for whatever reason. Like maybe I'm just picking bad examples, but like, Anytime I've seen angel wings in movies like Michael or Dogma or things like that, they always look really shitty. And mm -hmm. here it just looks so imposing. Like I don't need to see them flapping or anything to to believe that they're real and that right. I don't know. Everything yeah. feels very big and very awe-inspiring in a really cool way. Right. It really gives you the stakes that these are, you know, sort of cosmic uh, battle, not battles because they're not actually fighting, but like a, cars, a cosmic struggle between these two forces. Um, and that's just, it's really interesting how easily they can do that in some ways because, you know, this is the angel doesn't move essentially. You know, they, they fix the angel, the angel never moves in any of his scenes, and yet you get have this feeling of this giant, um, event that's taking place above the, you know, above us in the heavens, if you will. So absolutely. Yeah. You, like I said, you feel the whole weight of, of the biblical story. I mean, it's not a biblical story, but you can feel the, the biblical weight of it. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. the other world, the afterlife, all of this, all of these forces conspiring to manipulate or to help or to harm us on earth. And we're just kind of pawns in it all, you know, it feel the, the size of it comes across and the scope of it comes across. Um, yeah. And, and that's sort of the more, one of the most interesting parts for me is that sort of worldview or, or afterlife view or however you want to characterize it, you know, that it is, on the one hand, it is incredibly bleak. And we are so obviously in the thrall of um, these beings that are so high above us that they do things like make bets about us with not much consideration of what that might do. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, and and there's just fundamental evil in every corner. And at the same time, there's also this sense that if you just care about others, it doesn't matter what else happens. So it's it's on the one hand, it's this very sort of 
I don't know, new wave Christianity is quite the way to put it, but very sort of forgiving theology, very much like if you uh, mean well and do your best and, and ask for forgiveness in your final moments, you will be redeemed. And the other hand, it's some very sort of old religion where it's, you know, we are pawns in a huge game where we matter very little. Oh, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So it's very interesting how those, um, I don't know how much more now put into uh, thought put into that philosophy, but it's a very interesting integration of those two sort of uh, worldviews. Yeah, it, it feels... I don't know if I'm, it feels like a fairly reverent view of, of these kind of concepts while, and you you do have to wonder if Murnau's sexuality kind of played into some of his conceptions of, of how big and how oppressive these forces might be, you know, because if you're, if you're growing up as a gay young man, hearing nothing but the Bible telling you that you're a sinner and that you're born evil and, and you're going to hell, it makes these figures seem all the more looming and all the more terrifying and that comes across here so beautifully. Uh, man, what a cool movie. This was so awesome. Like I, every, any, any frame of it, I wanted to just like freeze frame and just like, all right, that's a metal cover. All right. That's a metal cover. That's a metal cover. Yeah. You know, like, and, and I know you're like a big comic book guy. I could see like, I could see you store storyboarding this movie as a comic book. Like it has a lot of oh, the absolutely. same kind of energy to it. You get a lot of things that are like literal splash pages, but yeah. just you know, in live action. Um, you know, anything with the angel, like I said, because the angel is always, in, you know, sort of when the angel's in frame, the angel doesn't move at all. No. Uh, but it has that feeling of dynamism like you get with a really good comic book panel. Absolutely. You know, that implies movement, that implies energy and power uh, without any uh, actual physical movement yeah it's it's absolutely incredible uh did you have anything else to say about this film before we wrap up today no i mean just talking about the images it boggles your mind if you could have seen a clean print you know in 1926 how incredible this movie must have looked um and uh, and the thing that we have unfortunately with every silent movie is what was the score like you know how much input did Murno have before it went into movie houses where they sort of either made it up on the fly or were given instructions. Um, you're always curious about that because with silent movies, they tend to affix pretty obvious scores for lack of a better way to put yeah. it. And sometimes Lots they can of still strings. be beautiful. Yeah. The, right. the, the Fandor version is all strings. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they can't be beautiful, but you're always very curious how different it might have been because you know not every score we have now is necessarily obvious so it stands to reason back then they also might have had filmmakers or or composers who took risks who did things differently uh and unfortunately it's just not something we can ever access because that's the nature of time in silent movies um but it would be really interesting to see or hear what the intentions were versus what we get now definitely definitely well, Tim, thank you so, so much for coming on and giving me an excuse to see this movie finally. Uh, this, oh, this was my pleasure. pretty incredible, and I, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, where can people find your stuff online if they want to read your uh, writing? Uh, well, the best place to go right now is The Spool. Uh, that's thespool.net. I am the social media guy over there. I also do uh, TV and movie reviews for them. Um, you can go to RottenTomatoes.com and search my name. Uh, it's got all my reviews for things like um, when Comicsverse was around, a bunch of stuff I did for them, and also 
Uh, some stuff I don't even remember doing. There's a review <laughs> that goes back to like years and years ago that I totally forgot I wrote. So, you know, if, if you want to surprise yourself, like I surprise myself. Uh, you I do that so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, wait, who wrote that? Oh, I wrote this. Okay, yeah. And then my own website is Tim Stevens is, and I'll spell this, ungaje, U-N-G-A-J-J-E dot com. Mm. Uh, and that's my sort of home site uh, where you get a ton of fiction writing and some criticism I just did for myself, top five lists, things like that. That's fantastic. I, I would I strongly encourage everyone to check it out, especially, uh, I think I said thespool.com earlier. My apologies. It's thespool.net. It's definitely yep. one of my favorite resources for film writing right now, and uh, it, it's really tremendous. I think you're an awesome writer, and it's been so exciting to have you here. So thank you. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, uh, you know, it was a joy to repeat, uh, to review this. Uh, it did remind me one thing. I'll just oh, yeah. close with a quick story. Yeah, yeah. So my, you know, it was my first film course at school, and I wanted to make an impression, so I would question things in class. You know, the teacher would offer uh, an observation, and I'd come back with, well, what if it was this or it could be this? Uh, and then I happened to look up her bio on my college's website, and it turned out that she was one of those well-regarded critics of German film in the country. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a deeply embarrassing moment where I realized that I was wising off essentially to a person who very much knew what they were talking about. Oh, my uh, God. To be a first-year film student again. Oh, my God. I must yeah. have been such an insufferable little shit. Like, every time, every film professor, yeah, yeah, oh, good for you. You watched Fargo. Congrats. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, so uh, if Janice Solomon's out there listening, I apologize again. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again. Thank you everybody for listening. We are Rogers list pod on all the different social medias. You can find us on letterbox under that name as well, where I'm keeping a running list of the movies that we have watched. So check all that out. Send us an email, Rogers list pod at gmail.com. Let us know if you're watching these movies as well. And uh, if you have any, thoughts or opinions you'd like to share with us. I always love getting letters from people. Uh, next week, tune in for a much, much lighter episode. We are going to be talking about Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. I think the only Marilyn Monroe film uh, on this list outside of All About Eve, but that's more of a cameo, but whatever. Yeah. So we get to talk about Marilyn Monroe. I'm very excited about that. And I deeply love that movie. So it's going to be a blast. So thank you everybody again. And uh, don't go selling your soul to anybody, you know, just, you know, not for now, at least. I mean, feel the deal out first. Make, <laughs> make a dedicated choice. Negotiate. Reject the first <laughs> offer. You know, you got to. It's, right. it's a conversation, you know. Just, it never hurts to consult an attorney. Absolutely. Yeah. They already know the devil. They're fine. <laughs> Night, everybody. Good night.